No, man. Ooh, giddy up. Boom. No, man. All right. Now good? All right. Thank you. All right. Listen. Uh, you know, we have two rather uh, detailed narratives of the nativity, one in Matthew and one in Luke. It's interesting that John, writing late and knowing that his audience has the synoptics, has Matthew and Luke, and so he can assume that they know that story. And so rather than him giving us a nativity narrative, he simply reduces that unspeakably blessed story to four words. Remember those words? The Word became flesh. And I don't know that God has ever set, set before mankind a, a simple truth statement that when considered carefully, more thoroughly drives us to the end of ourselves, drives us to our knees in happy, humble submission, then the simple phrase, the Word became flesh. Now, we celebrate that reality at Christmas, but I, I honestly, I wonder if we wonder as we should. Um, and, and I want to just take a, a real quick moment before I get into the notes, because I'm going to try and get through those notes tonight, but I'm going to go quickly. And, uh, but but uh, uh, I, I, as I say, I, I, I think it's so important to calibrate rather consciously our soul spirits to come to grips honestly with the unspeakable mystery and majesty of that simple reality. The Word became flesh. John has said, in the beginning was the Word. Before Genesis 1-1, the Word was with God. The Word is God. And yet the Word became flesh. Now, that reality of the God-man, there is bottomless, ineffable, delightful mystery in that reality, the Word became flesh. Jesus is God, very God, man, very man. And uh, uh, I, just to make my point real quickly, I think we've gotten a little used to it. It kind of rolls off of our tongue, and we don't maybe stop and think about what's really at stake. I'd love to talk about it at greater length. But let me just say this. To make my point, imagine that you are living in the first century, in, the, in, in, in Israel, and and uh, perhaps you are a very deliberate Yahwist. You have embraced, uh, uh, you're Jewish, you have embraced and given your allegiance to Yahweh, and you are waiting for Messiah. And uh, all of your experience and all of your ancestors' experience, they have been surrounded by pagan peoples who had a bunch of gods who lived on a hill outside of town, and they were nothing more than men blown big. Imaginary men, demonic perhaps, but they were just men blown big. The pagan gods, you see what I'm saying? And they warred big and they revenged big, but they were just men born big. God, and you sang about it, God reveals himself throughout the Old Testament as a holy God. Now, what does holy mean? Don't talk to me. Separate, right? Now, when you think of holiness from a New Testament perspective, I mean, this is appropriate, you think of it as, as separate from sin. Amen and amen, from evil. That's really not the point in the Old Testament. In the Hebrew Scriptures, the point God is making, Yahweh is making about himself when he continually uh, insists that he is holy, is that he is separate from creation. He is not just man blown big. He called creation into existence. He is ontologically, not just morally, but ontologically, fifth essence, right? 
uh, separate. Now, given that, this is what you know as a deliberate, careful uh, Jewish thinker that Yahweh, your God, is not a man. And yet here stands a man before you claiming to be God. Uh, it's, it's Jesus made two claims, don't go down this road, Bookman, but Jesus made two claims concerning himself all throughout his ministry. He claimed to be Messiah and he claimed to be God. And it is so difficult for us to understand how bottomlessly difficult those claims are incredible. And I like to say, forgive me, that I'm the only guy in this English-speaking language that knows how to use the word incredible, you know, because they just mean swell. No, it means something. People say, oh, that was an incredible sermon. Wouldn't it be better for a sermon to be credible? You know, incredible means unworthy of belief. And Jesus' claims concerning himself were stunningly, staggeringly difficult to believe. Now, I could walk you through how God wrought so carefully to make those incredible claims not only credible, compelling, so that to believe them was high-handed disbelief. But leave that aside. All I'm saying is you're back there in that day and there is a man standing before you claiming to be God come in the flesh. What if it happened today? What if, you guys don't know me. What if I were to, you know, I don't even like to say this out loud, but I've been doing some thinking. I think maybe I'm God come in the flesh. How do you react to that? You don't let me play with sharp things. You put me somewhere where I belong. Well, you say, well, okay, but, you know, when Jesus made that claim, it wasn't so hard to believe because I've seen pictures. And he had a halo. He didn't have a halo. He didn't glow in the dark. He was a man. And before he was a man, he was a young man. Before that, a boy. And before that, a child. And before that, an embryo. He was a man. It is staggering. Does that make sense to you? And it's so important. I think one of the reasons that we don't wonder as we ought is because we kind of think we got to figure it out. That really he was God. This is what I call the Clark Kent approach to Christology, the doctrine of Christ. You know Clark Kent, right? Story's still around. There never was a Clark Kent. That was Superman pretending, right? Very deliberately perpetuating the illusion. We get these ideas, especially as we read the narratives. Well, of course, Jesus was God pretending to be man. He was in constant and deliberate use of all of his attributes. No, he wasn't. He took upon himself genuine humanity. Now, we can talk about this more next week. I think one of the most interesting dynamics of the incarnation, the narrative of the, infants, of, of, of the uh, nativity, is a doctrine, not a doctrine, a kind of a subset of Christology called the messianic consciousness. Now, that term is used in two different ways. You've got to be careful. What I'm talking about is, at what point did Jesus realize who he was? I think he had to, that's what it is. You know, there is a, and I, I'm going to tell you this, and I want you to forget it as soon as I tell you, but there, is, there are a number of really, really, they're, they're wicked, okay? But they, there are apocryphal books, I won't get into it, but they're from late, very late, uh, you know, second to fourth century, and they claim to be telling about the boyhood of Jesus, and uh, they have all of these silly miracles and so on. I won't get into it, but the point is, one of those stories, and this actually shows up in a couple of places in the uh, Apocrypha, and it's in the Koran. But no, that's not the story I want to talk about. I went to the wrong story. The story I'm about to tell you 
is only in one apocalypse. And we don't actually have it, Eusebius, remember. But the point is that in one so-called Gospel of the it claims that as Jesus was wrapping, uh, I'm sorry, as Mary was wrapping Jesus in his, in his swaddling clothes, he looked up at her and said, handle me carefully, I'm the Son of God. Well, that takes some of the fun out of Christmas, right? But you see, that's Clark Kent walking into the room. See what I'm saying? That's, and, and so don't go there. So I'm going to talk about the nativity here, and, and you have it on your, your sheet. I'll kind of follow the sheet, but I'm going to, I really would like to get through this tonight, and I can't keep you long. So, but let me just say this, that in all that the Bible, the New Testament, the Gospels have to say in, in terms of narrative, in all that the Scriptures have to say in terms of theological description, understand Jesus took upon himself genuine, entire, hear me, unfallen humanity. And I think the tendency is sometimes to say, well, wait a minute, can you be really human without sin? You bet you can. There was a man named Adam. He was fully human. And until he fell into sin, sin is an invader in the human experience. And Jesus was perfectly human. He was, in terms of his humanity, he was Adam before Adam fell. All right, so I'm just, any, that makes sense to you? I'm asking you to kind of calibrate your head to say, okay, what we're talking about this season of the year is deeply, deeply mysterious. It is infinitely delightful, wonderful, blessed, but it is deeply mysterious. As a matter of fact, I would say infinitely. We'll never get to the bottom of it, but I'll leave it alone. But again, in order to really wonder as we ought, I think we have to be very, very honest and serious about what the Bible says about the reality of Jesus' humanity. It took him himself. All right, so we'll talk more about that. All right, now, listen, I want to talk to you, and this is on the sheet. I thought this is kind of a fun exercise for me anyway, <laughs> you decide, but, but uh, I think it's important. Well, I'll start with this. It's unspeakably important to read the Bible in terms of its own culture, right, in all of its parts. And it's a very different culture from ours. And, and when you read the Bible in terms of your culture, you miss so much, and quite frankly, you get so much wrong. Okay, I'm going to time out. I don't have time for a time out, but I'm compelled by this. You know the most important things in that regard? The version you read. I'm telling you, folks, I get ugly about this, but... There are two types, and I know this is oversimplified, but it, it works. There are two approaches to Bible translation. One is called dynamic, the other is called formal equivalence, dynamic equivalence. Dynamic equivalence uh, wants to make the Bible entirely accessible. They aim for a comic book level of complexity. They want to get it to like a comic book, honest to goodness. That's their philosophy. But So they want to, here's the point, watch this. In a dynamic equivalence, and I'm talking primarily about the NIV, okay? Get rid of it. I'm telling you. Maybe for, uh, oh, okay, so let me just be serious with you real quickly. The idea with a dynamic equivalent translation, hear me on this, is to take the text into the culture of the reader. So they change to bring it into your culture. There's, there's, uh, uh, when I was a kid, I, I, you know, in high school, I, I, we were passing out, you know, supposed to pass out, I did, you know, pass out New Testament. We had these little New Testaments called denim, 
uh, yeah, denim, I think, denim New Testament, or something like that, because it had a little denim cover. It was supposed to have, and because, and it had some Psalms, it had Psalm 23, and because it was intended for the, you know, kind of the kid on the street, you know, uh, Psalm 23, 1 became the Lord is my traffic cop. Now, there's so much wrong with that, it makes your eyes water. Would you not agree? But do you see what's going on? Kid doesn't know what a shepherd is, so we're going to make it the traffic cop. Uh, Psalm, I'm sorry, um, uh, John 1.29, in a number of translations, which were done, and you can see this in the Museum of the Bible. You go and they got a section on Bible translation, and they got a little wheel you can, ah, they did when I was there ten years, five years ago. But, but at any rate, it shows you various ways that John 1.29 has been translated in order to make it make sense to the culture. And in a lot of those cultures, they'd never seen a lamb, didn't know what a shepherd is, a sheep. But they, when, they would do thing, when they would have a ritual of any sort, really they'd use pigs. So John 29 became, behold, the swine of God that takes away the sin of the world. Now you realize you're going to spend the rest of your life trying to undo the damage that does to a person if he's all right. Now those are, those are extreme, and the NIV does a better job than that. But it is very deliberately trying to take the text and bring it into your culture. What you want is a version which demands that you step into the culture of the text. The reader step into that culture. But wait, it's foreign. Yeah, so spend some time with it and, and, and learn that culture. But I can't it, it stress enough how important. Now, to make my point, let me take you to the narrative in front of us, and we'll see how far we get. But I'm saying that there is an element of the nativity narrative which I think is so important, so gripping, and so preponderant. Is that the word? It, it's very dominant in the narrative as we have it. But because we tend to read it in our own culture, that is that story of the nativity, we miss it in almost entirely. All right, so I'm going to try and sort of recalibrate your head in three ways. You have it on the notes. Very quickly... The first way in which I'd kind of ask you to rethink the narrative in, in a very specific way is to understand the... The way I said it in your notes is that Mary and Joseph were man and wife. They were not engaged. That's what I'm getting at. Now, the NIV, as long as I'm beaten up on it, I'll step across the street to get it done, by the way. But, but uh, the NIV has... Uh, it came to Mary who was pledged. Now, that sounds like the NASB, and they corrected this. This is 20, 40 years ago. They had engaged. Mary was engaged. Let me take you there, for heaven's sakes. Uh, well, let me go to, uh, that meeting has ended, so that train has left. Listen, take your Bibles and go to Matthew chapter 1. In Matthew chapter 1, and verse 18, it simply says, and you're familiar with this, but I want, it, it's best if you can eyeball it. It says, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. I have the... New King James, based on the Old King James, which is the real Bible. No, I'm teasing. I, I know better. But, but uh, uh, New King James, NASB, ESP, uh, they're pretty dynamic, to be honest with you. They, they depart from it. They claim. Uh, but at any rate, so the New King James says, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph. Now again, the old ASP, or NASB had uh, engaged, the uh, NIV has pledged. It, it's, it's, now, here's my point. I'm going to be very quick. I'm, I'm, I'm getting after myself. I can spend a lot of time with this. But suffice it to say that Jewish marriage was very, very different 
from marriage as we know it today. And very quickly, you should, you should, and, and you know what? If you're going to learn that culture, and if you're not, may God have mercy on your sin, sick, shrivel up soul, to be honest with you, but learn that culture. But, but if it start with marriage and funerals. They're fascinating. They're very different from the way we do it. They show up all over the scriptures and word pictures and stories. So at any rate, in a Jewish marriage in the first century and in a Hasidic or Orthodox Jewish marriage today, there are two stages to a wedding, and they're separated by several months. The first is the betrothal. Now, what happens at the betrothal is this, that let's just say for a second, here's a clan over here, Here's a clan over here, time out. That's another thing you need to know. All throughout scriptures, they live as clans, as extended family. It just ramifies in every conceivable way to the narratives themselves. Get used to that. But anyway, here's a clan, here's a clan. You've got a young lady, marriageable age over here, and this clan is a young man, and somehow uh, somebody gets the suggestion that uh, perhaps it would be a good match. So this clan is going to dispatch a, a representative and he's called the friend of the bridegroom. And he is going to make it. He knows the bridegroom well. He knows the clan. He knows the man. And so he can speak for him. He's going to come here, and he's going to approach the elders and then the family of that young woman and make an offer. Uh, that is, we, we like to explore the possibility, and there are steps along the way, and the young people have a little... Well, these are arranged marriages. I know that sounds kind of primitive or barbaric to us. Let me just say... <laughs> that of all the demons in hell spent a whole weekend trying to come up with a system of courtship that was most thoroughly doomed to destruction, they'd come up with what we got. So I, we got no high ground going on today, let me just say that. But uh, now I'm a grandparent, so, you know, but, but the point is, so what's going to happen is that if, if, if they're open to, if they decide, yes, we will uh, uh, allow, we'll, we'll uh, allow that young woman to marry that young man. They will meet the the family and 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 elders of the clan will meet before a judge, and there is a formal betrothal contract, and that contract spells out several things. One of the most important is the day of the wedding, and and because the wedding is several months off, but. Uh, as of the betrothal, if there's any sort of uh, uh, token traded and so on, that happens there. But as of the betrothal, when that betrothal is signed, they are man and wife. As I say, and you have it in the narrative, that it, it, after they are betrothed, it takes a, it takes a, a, a divorce. To, to, you know, what, what does it take to break out an engagement? You know, one bad dinner, for heaven's sake. But you're out of here, bud. You know what I'm saying? But... Uh, with, with, in, in, with, a, with a betrothal. Now, so you have the betrothal, and then the wedding date is set. And the wedding date is at once, the wedding itself is at once very simple and very, very intriguing because all that's going to happen on the wedding day is the groom is going to fetch his bride to the, oh, I didn't say, during the months of the betrothal, the groom's responsibility is to prepare a home to which he will fetch his bride on the wedding day. So he's got to prepare a home. Now these are clans, and uh, one of the kind of expressions for getting married in that day was adding a room to your daddy's tent because that was pretty much what was at stake. And so you're living as a clan. You get you some goat hair. You make a little, you know, and you move in. But 
The fact is that he has to prepare the home to which he is going to fetch her on the wedding day. She is responsible to make herself beautiful for the wedding day. And, and it's very important. I mean, it is unspeakably important that during those months of betrothal, they remain pure, sexually pure. So much so that, and you can imagine, just as in any culture, certainly ours, that if you're living in the same little village and you're of an age and uh, the hormones are doing what hormones do and, and you, uh, you're already married, the temptation might be greater to be careless. That makes sense to you? So the woman, the, the bride, would often absent herself. And that's what Mary does. She goes down to be with Beth, uh, 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 Elizabeth uh, in a village in, in, in Judah there. So she goes to, and, and is there for three months. Now, let's go back to the story. Well, let me say, first of all, on the wedding day, what's going to happen is the groom is going to fetch the bride to the home that he's prepared. But it's not that simple. In point of fact, you're going to have, you're going to, you know, depending on your wealth, you're going to hire, uh, uh, you know, musicians and poets, and uh, it's going to be a huge entourage, and, and there is no more, there is no happier day in Jewish life than a wedding day. And if, if it's your family, you get there. And, and, and remember, Jesus told a parable about a man who had a drab garment, and they threw him out. You got everything. So... Everybody gathers around, and, they, and, and, and the, the bride and all of her finery is often on a, held aloft on a chair, you know, and they're winding all through the streets. And, and if you're coming home from the grocery store, and here comes a, a wedding march, and you don't even know these people, you put the groceries down, and you get it on for a few minutes. You know, it's absolutely incumbent that you sing and dance. Time out real quickly. I get a kick. But you remember... Jezebel in the Old Testament, Ahab and Jezebel, the wicked queen. Do you remember how Jezebel died? Do you remember that? I'll give you a hint. This is an Old Testament story for which you may be hard-pressed to find a flannel graph, if you know what I'm saying. It says she was thrown down and eaten of dogs. But the dogs ate everything but the palms of her hand and the soles of her feet. And there is a Jewish Targumic, uh, not Targumic, a Talmudic uh, sermon, Midrash it's called, on that story. And it says that, that as wicked as she was, and there was nobody more wicked, at least when she encountered a wedding march, she clapped and danced, and that's why God graced her in that way. Now, I don't know how advantaged she was by God's goodness there, but, but the fact is that it just makes the point that that's in the Jewish life. So you have the betrothal, and then several months go by, and oftentimes the young woman will absent herself for a time, and then that grand day. Now, here's what happened. And by the way, I've got time for this, but it is interesting that these two Bethlehemite Judah, you know, families of Judah, they're both Davidic, they're both from the tribe of Judah, and their, their home is Bethlehem, but they're living up in Galilee. I'll just tell you, a hundred years before Christ, one of the Hasmonean king rulers, priest rulers who was ruling, the Jewish priest that was ruling at that time, uh, uh, conquered Galilee. And Galilee is good living. Uh, uh, Josephus refers to Galilee as the ambition of nature. If nature could grow up and be what it wants to be. Galilee is beautiful. Oh, I could go on and on. I'll take you there someday. I'd love to. But, but uh, if we ever get back there. But Judea, on the other hand, Jerusalem, Bethlehem, that's tough living in every way. It's tough living. I won't get hard to travel. 
very little uh, uh, tillable soil, just very, very difficult living. So in about 100 years before Christ, when Galilee was conquered by the Jewish leaders, hundreds of thousands of Jews settled up in Galilee. And that's why when Jesus comes, he has to spend 18 months. He comes to present himself to Israel in his generation. He spends 18 months up there in Galilee because that's where most of them live. Does that make sense to you? So here you have, but the thing is that both Mary and Joseph have really two clan centers, if you don't mind. Uh, their main family is going to be down in Bethlehem, but some have moved up and they're living up in, in Galilee. And so here's the point. The word goes out and there's nothing happier and the word would have been spread both to friends but certainly to family there in both in Nazareth and down in Galilee. Mary is betrothed to Joseph and this is the day. And they would have marked it on their calendar. They would have been making ready. They would have decided gifts and so on. Uh, it's such a happy day. All right, here's what happens. The Bible says, look at it, Matthew 1.18. It says that very simply that when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child. Now what I'm saying to you, and I, this is really where I'm taking you, but there is, when you understand that from a Jewish perspective, understand what's at stake, understand the reputation of both families, Mary's and Joseph's and so on, that, that, listen, you ought to hear a, <laughs> a community-wide gasp go up as you read that. She's fine. What happened is she went down to be with Elizabeth. And then she comes, well, down, she's in Judah, and then she comes back to Bethlehem. And we're not told. It was about three months she was with, with, with Elizabeth. But at the birth of John the Baptist, remember, she comes back. And I don't know how much time goes by, but it's a little village. Nazareth is a village of maybe 600 people. Uh, really, it's a, it's, it's a bunch of, um, uh, well, Artisans, as Joseph, for instance, who, by the way, forgive me, was a stonemason. I don't think he was a woodworker. I think he was a stonemason. But, but nonetheless, and then you have people who pasture and people who farm and so on, and they have their homes in a cluster, and everybody knows everybody. And in that culture, you live out your life in the village where you were born. And so everybody knew this family of Joseph, and everybody knew the family of Mary, and what delight it would have been when they heard they'd become betrothed. But now comes the day when, as I say, a message had gone out that Mary and Joseph were betrothed. Here's the wedding day. Make plans. What happiness. Another message goes out. There won't be any wedding. Mary is carrying a child. Now we know that child was conceived before the wedding night because the wedding night never happened. And she's got some wild story, and Joseph... Uh, it, it, now, my point is this. And you know what? Real quickly. You have these two nativity narratives, Matthew and Luke, and the critics, the Bible deniers, those who are trying to discredit the Bible at every chance, they love to say, oh, it's so... It's, those two stories are totally irreconcilable. They're so contradictory. One, you got an angel coming to Mary. Another, you got an angel coming to Joseph. Eh, they're just two traditions. It's all nonsense. Well, the fact of the matter is, they fit together perfectly, just perfectly. And, and, and Luke tells us that Matthew, I'm sorry, that, that the angel had come and told Mary that marvelous news. And you know what? I think Mary could do the calculus. You know what I'm saying? She realized that the most precious day 
in her life and one of the most precious days in the life of all who loved her, she's never going to have. But she consented to bear the Christ child. Now, don't spend any time with this. But I'm, I rather suspect that without too much thought, you can think of this or that situation, don't work at it, where some young lady did wickedly, found herself in the family way, as we used to say, and came up with some wild story to cover her tracks, right? I could tell you some pretty crazy stories. Try this one on for size. How is Mary going to persuade Joseph? She couldn't possibly. I'm still a virgin. The child is, 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 is conceived of the Holy Spirit. Well, the only answer to that is for an angel to come to Joseph. And that's what you have here. So now the angel comes to Joseph. Read on there in Matthew chapter 1. Uh, her husband Joseph, being a just man, and you can read that this way, because he was a just man. It's a present participle, but I think it's better read this way. Her, her husband, notice she is his wife, he is her husband. Don't think he wasn't a just man. I think that's what Matthew is saying. Don't read this to think that he wasn't very, very serious about Mosaic Levitical biblical standards. But even though he was a just man, I think it's about, and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. And here it is. Now, eyeball this. If you've got your Bible in front of your neighbor's Bible, I want you to eyeball it. I'm going to ask you a question about this verse, verse, uh, 20, verse 20. The angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary. What's the next word? Do you have as? Most do. That word is not there. It ruins everything. If, 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 if the angel says, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife, what does that mean? Yeah, they're not married yet. They are married. And the word is not there. What the angel says, and I think this is one of the most winsome, poignant, gripping scenes in the narrative. Though it's just implied, but I think it's absolutely, it's, 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 it's there. What the angel says is, Joseph, don't be afraid to go fetch your wife to the place you prepared. Now, there won't be any singing. There won't be any dancing. People are going to be mad, angry, humiliated. You may have to do it under cover of night. As a matter of fact, it even suggests, because he came to it by night, and the idea seems to be, go get her right now. Because there will probably be people spitting at you. There will be people. So my point is this. The angel says, don't be afraid. Go fetch her. And Joseph obediently, graciously, selflessly goes and brings his wife, his betrothed, to the place that he has prepared. Now, folks, here's what I think jumps off the narrative if you read it from that Jewish perspective. And that is, there is, as part of the biblical nativity narrative, there is a measure of shame and anger and ignominy. And really, Joseph's family would have been beside themselves. You brought awful shame. You brought home a woman who's carrying a child. You confess it's not your child. She confesses it's not your child. She's got some crazy story. But she's carrying a child 
that was conceived in wickedness from their perspective. Joseph's family would have been, I think, very angry. Certainly Mary's family would have been horribly disappointed in her and so on. So I'm just saying that when you read it, understand what a wedding is. Understand the dynamics of that little phrase, who was betrothed to Joseph before they came together. She was found with child. That makes sense to you? All right, now let me do two other things real quick. I can do it quick. I could spend a lot of time with this. The second point at which I want you to calibrate, recalibrate your understanding of the narrative. Folks, I'm going to say it very, I'm going to, I'm going to beat up on some sermons and, and, and uh, you know, discredit some Christmas cards. But I'm telling you, they did not, all right, Luke says, if you go to Luke chapter 2, it says explicitly that there was a decree that had gone out. I love to talk about the decree. I think it had to do with the impending death of Herod and so on and the dynamics of the tax system. But suffice it to say, a decree had gone out that everybody in the Jewish world there in Israel under the realm of Herod had to go and register in their hometown. So Joseph knew that he was going to have to go down to Bethlehem soon. Now, listen, a lot of the, the ideas that spring out of this the idea is, people have this idea, and it's totally wrong, that when they had a census like this, a tax registration, you got a postcard, you know, and it said, like, like City Hall, Bethlehem, Tuesday, 12th of August, 10 in the morning, be there. Oh, nuts, i got to get down there. Folks, they give you usually a year, all right? So it wasn't like you had, you know, there's always no room in the inn because everybody was in town for the No, no, no. The fact is, Bethlehem was a small town, and, and, and he had months. He had some period of time. All right, now, it does connect that to Luke's telling of the nativity. Here's the thing. I'm just going to make it simple. And I can give you a lines of proof for this, that Joseph and Mary were not making a quick trip to register intending to return. They didn't come screeching into town just in time for the baby to be born, all right? That's absolutely denied in the Scripture. I think the point is that Joseph, because, well, I'll tell you what the Bible is explicit about. Mary and Joseph were quitting Nazareth. They were moving away. They did not intend to return. And there are several lines of evidence to that. I won't take you through it, but it's so clear in the Scripture. The big one, by the way, the big evidence is that after the baby is born and you have the whole uh, 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 wise men flight to Egypt business and so on, then Herod dies, the Bible is explicit in Matthew that they returned to Judea and they settled in in Judea in the south until they heard that Archelaus was going to reign and he was such a butcher, I'd love to talk to you about all this, so, so they moved to Nazareth. So the Bible is explicit. When they got done with the Egypt thing, they came back to Judea. That's, that's Bethlehem. I mean, that would include Bethlehem, but I think that's the point. You always live with your clan. Now, I can absolutely demonstrate, I think, biblically, that kind of twofold proposition, that they were leaving Nazareth, not intending to return, and that they, they were going to resettle with their, with their family in Bethlehem. Now, here is raw conjecture, all right? But I think it's reasonable. I think it kind of colors the story. Why? Why had they decided? That's very strange. You live your life out in the village of your youth. I think it's because almost certainly life had become unlivable in Nazareth. I think the, 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 the ignominy, the shame in that little town, as I said a moment ago, I think Joseph, all right, he, he was a stonemason. The word translated carpenter is tectone. It means builder. 
go to Israel, you discover right away you don't build with wood. There's no wood. You build with stone. So I think he was probably a stonemason. Ah, there are arguments on both sides. But at any rate, that sort of work, everything was day work in that day, and you would go higher out to some construction project somewhere, and you would usually use work as teams. So several guys, it was kind of a guild, and several men from your neighborhood, and generation after generation, they would work together as a team. They were very good. I, I, I just wonder if Joseph's stonemason team didn't say to him, Joseph, you're not working with us anymore. You brought home a woman who's, got, who's bearing a child. You can't work with us. So I'm saying to you that they had quit Nazareth. That's absolutely clear. I think probably because of the, like I say, the, the difficulties there in, Naz- in, uh, in, um, in Nazareth. Now, I want you to go to Luke, and this is my last one, and then we're done. In Luke chapter 2, in verse, uh, first you have the story of the, of the, um, uh, the census, and I think the point is that Joseph, as I said, knew that he was going to have, listen, if he was just going down, he never would have taken his pregnant wife, for heaven's sake. That's another argument. Everybody has some ideas to why he took his wife. He took his wife because he wasn't coming back. That's the point. But let me take you one more step. It says in Luke 2 and verse 6, and again, you have this notion that's almost ubiquitous that they just got there in time for the baby to be born. Look at Luke 2 and verse 6. It says he came to Bethlehem. So it was that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. So they got there and were there for some time. Now the third element is in verse 7 where it says, She brought forth her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Now very quickly, the number one, uh, the... uh, there are two references to Jesus being born, being laid in a feeding trough. Here I'm with the shepherds, right here in Luke 2. That's the only hint that we have that Jesus was, in fact, born in a place where animals were penned. Now, I think the story is this. Oh, the other thing i got to tell you, the word inn. There is so much wrong with that word. What do you think of when you think of an inn? Now, Stephen mentioned this, I think, uh, yeah, this morning. But the word in is kataluma. It's used two other times, once in Mark, once in Luke. In both cases, it is a deliberate, explicit, no mistake about it, reference to the room where Jesus took his disciples to keep the Passover. We call it the upper room. It probably ought to be translated upper room. But what's at stake is this, and I'll give you a little picture there, that in a, in a Jewish life, you, you build your home, you build your house, so that the roof is a living space. You can do something on the way that, you know, Rahab and the flax or whatever. And one of the uses to which the rooftop was always put is there would be a guest chamber. This was almost just universal. Now it might be modest, it might be expansive, but normally it was just a little bit of a shelter where the where, where a honored guest could be could could uh, be kept. And so I think what happens is this. And and let me read that verse again because in Luke two it says she wrapped him in swaddling clothes, laid him in a feeding trough. Now, I want to read it this way, because there was no room. Room is not a good translation there. It's actually topos. It means place. And I think you can read it this way. She laid him in a manger because the kataluma, the guest chamber, was no place for them. And I think probably what happened almost certainly is this, and I guarantee the first part of this, that 
when they left Nazareth and came to uh, to Bethlehem, they didn't go to some public hostelry, you know, and all the no vacancy signs and so on. I don't think that existed. Now, there were these big caravansaries in between two cities where the caravans could find shelter, but that's out in the road somewhere. In a city like Bethlehem, I don't think there would have been any sort of public hostelries because in a Jewish life, you take care of strangers, people who are traveling. It's a primary responsibility. Joseph would have gone to his family. It's, it's, it, it's unthinkable that he would have gone. If you understand that culture, he went to his, came, so he comes to Bethlehem. Now, in many cases, when you build a home or as you expand a home, uh, you will often dig, if there's a, you know, a hill next to you with a you know, limestone hill, you'll dig out a, an animal pen, very close to the house, sometimes because you want to share the heat of the animals, to be honest with you. But, but it's not the house, but it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a man-made cave that was dug to be an animal pen. And you would always leave, uh, depending on the size of the, of the pen, of course, the cave, you would leave a couple of some, some just pillars of limestone. And you just leave them there attached to the earth and square them off, and then you'd dig out the top, and that would be your feeding trough. And, and I think what happened almost certainly is by reason of the anger and the humility, because it was so difficult even to live in Nazareth, they said, let's go home to our family. And they would have come to their family, and she is pregnant, she's very pregnant, it's going to be some time before she bears the child, that's what the Bible says. But I think his family might have said, Joseph, we love you. We're going to learn to love this woman you've taken to yourself. We'll learn to love the child she's going to bear. But you have brought such shame. You have, just, you have just so destroyed the spirit of our family. We can't give you the place of honor. The kataluma is no place for you. But we can take the animals, maybe cordon off a part of the pen or put them out to pasture, and, and it'll be warm and safe, and so you can stay there. And for some days now, some weeks maybe, as life goes on in that village, everybody knows that Mary and Joseph and his pregnant wife, Mary, are living in that cave out of shame because the family is so ashamed of what's happened. Now, how many times do you suppose that Joseph must have maybe got a bucket of water and scrubbed out that gnarly feeding trough and found some fresh grasses and hay to lay in there. It's interesting, folks, that when the angels go on the night of the, of the birth to the shepherds, they say to the shepherds, of course, the Christ child is born and there was great rejoicing, but they said, this will be a sign to you. You will find him in, wrapped in swaddling clothes, and that is not the sign. There's an idea that has some legs in our community about, about a migdal eater, which is absolutely wrong, I think. But, but every Jewish baby is wrapped in swaddling clothes. You'll, this will be a sign. You'll find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. The angels are saying, here's how you can know you've got the right baby. There's no glow, there's no halo, but here's how you can know you got the right baby. He'll be lying in a feeding trough. Now, why is it that that functions as a sign? 
because you don't do that with a newborn baby. Nobody else is going to lay their newborn baby in an animal feeding trough. But that's how your Savior entered the earth. Now let me just say that, and this is on your sheet, but Isaiah 53, you know, he says, uh, who has believed our report? What Isaiah is saying in Isaiah 53 is, who could believe what I'm about to tell you? This Messiah that we have waited for, for all of these hundreds of years that we have just anticipated so anxiously, when he comes, there is no beauty. He has no form nor comeliness. He's despised. Now, when you read that, appropriately enough, your mind goes to the cross. I think it can go to the cradle. It's such a stunning and important part of the narrative that even in his birth, the baby Jesus was despised and forsaken. And when you read in Philippians 2 that he set aside the glory that was his and he became man and humbled himself, I think that's part of the picture. All right. I'm going to word of prayer with you. Listen, next week I'm going to be with you. <laughs> and if, whatever questions you might have, I'm going to have a couple things I'd like to run down, but whatever questions you might have about this or about uh, uh, just, I don't know, Christmas season, if you don't mind, uh, I'd, I'd love to talk with you about it and at least suggest some things. All right, let's have a word of prayer. Father, we do love you. We, we acknowledge that every good gift comes down from you, the Father of lights. And Father, every one of us has got to confess, if we give it any thought at all, and we should, that you are such a good and giving and gracious and kind and, and, and deliberately giving God. And we praise you for all of that. But Father, above all there, else, there is this, that you have given us your Son. And as we contemplate and celebrate the reality of the Word becoming flesh, Father, I'd pray that uh, in all of its parts that story might, might grip us and, uh, and that we would, we would uh, uh, be the more anxious to give ourselves away to you, given all that you have given us. So go before us, bless this ministry. And we'll thank you in Christ's name. Amen.